0: Church, and they'll be dismissed out these doors to your right, and let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to the end of Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the last few verses there, and we uh, are beginning today our our stewardship campaign. We're calling it the next step of faith, so if you're a guest with us today, hey, great. (laughs) Uh, if you're part of the Tabernacle family, we hope uh, this is something that's going to bless your socks off. Uh, as we begin this campaign, uh, I think what we need to do is, is step back. Uh, we need to step way, way back to get the big picture. Why are we here? What are we doing? What is life all about? It's the same, it's the same perspective that Paul adopts right at the end of Chapter 11. He's been going on for what amounts to 11 chapters of God's God's grace, God's abundant, lavish grace to sinful people, whether they come from Jewish backgrounds, whether they come from non-Jewish backgrounds, whether they, you know, come from this end of the earth or that end of the earth. God's grace toward those who don't deserve it uh, just has absolutely enthralled Paul, and that's his message: the message of the gospel of faith in Jesus that justifies us, makes, it, makes us righteous in God's sight, and takes our sins away. And at the end of all that, Paul backs back way, way up. You know, he just, he takes in the whole canopy in these uh, three verses, uh, four verses. So let's stand in honor of God's word and begin in verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the be glory forever. Amen. Lord, we agree with that. and We pray that you would get glory in our hearts as we hear your word and receive your word and, and take it to heart. Lord, would you change us and make us more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So right here at the end of chapter 11, as I said, Paul just gives this doxology, the celebration of God's glory, and, and you almost get the sense that he he kind of is like he can't contain it like a hyper little girl, you know, <laughs> to use that bizarre comparison, uh, and he's just kind of overflowing with praise, and he, and, he, and he can't even, he's quoting Isaiah, he's quoting Job, and it's just kind of flowing from him, and when he gets to the end here, he says three things that are going to orient our thinking this morning. First of all, who has given him a gift that God should repay him? Um, whoever puts God in their debt. For secondly, from him and through him and to him are all things. And then thirdly, therefore, to him be glory forever. Let's, let's talk about God and gifts and that dynamic. Um, when we think about giving a gift to God... Um, what Paul mentions is, uh, as, as I said, Isaiah and, and Job. Uh, I want to mention a couple of these, uh, let you see these, these verses in their context. When Paul marvels at the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, um, he uses the words of the prophets, and that's good for us to use the Bible, use the Psalms, use the prophets, uh, use God's word to praise him. And he quotes Isaiah 40. Uh, which in its extended sense, uh, Isaiah, God asks through Isaiah, who has measured or or directed the spirit of the Lord? Who tells God what to do, right? Uh, or what man shows him his counsel? God's never scratching his head wondering, you know, I could do this or this or this. Um, you know, I'm going to call up Essen. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, Anyway, uh, God's never doing that because he has all wisdom and all knowledge. Um, For somebody with all of that wisdom and all of that knowledge, though, there's a weird little dynamic. I don't know if you've ever considered the fact or noticed that over and over again, as we just sang in that song, Behold Our God, God keeps asking questions. For somebody with so much knowledge, it's a little bit remarkable that God keeps asking questions like, again in Isaiah, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, right? Uh, There's no idol that's going to make an accurate comparison to God. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, these stars, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, you know, Orion, Pallades, By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Just a reminder of God's power, and he uses questions, not because he is needing to be reminded or not because his wisdom has fallen short, but because we need to be reminded and because our wisdom falls short. Uh, It's just a, a tool that God uses. Another question, again, from Job this time. So, you know, at the end of Job. God just peppers Job with all these questions just to remind Job God is on his throne. He's in charge. He hasn't forgotten Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. And you know, they beckon at your call. Nobody, nobody can direct the, the storm. Nobody tells Hurricane Matthew where to go. Nobody tells the lightning where to strike. None of that's true. And we move on, more questions, this time to Abraham and Sarah, who are 190 years old, respectively, and God tells them they're going to have a baby, and they laugh. That's crazy talk and um, God says, is anything too hard or wonderful or marvelous for the Lord to do? Again, just pointing out his greatness, his glory. And lastly, you remember when Moses was to confront Pharaoh, Moses just feels his inadequacy and he is looking for any excuse to get out of this deal And God has to challenge Moses and remind him of his greatness and his power. And God calls the shots and asks Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God keeps asking questions, not because he's ignorant, but because we are and we forget and we need help to figure out what is real and how should we do life. So Over and over again, you see these great questions in the Bible pointing us to his greatness. So when we look at God's greatness and his glory on display, we also get um, a glorious picture of him as a giver. Uh, Who has given a gift to God that God should repay him? God's the one that gives gifts. He's the one that owns everything and possesses everything. Everything under heaven is, is his. Um, so when when he gives us gifts, you have to ask well then what 's the greatest gift that God could give us uh, what 's the greatest gift that God could give us? Another way to phrase the question is what would be the greatest possession that you or I could have um, and, and you know think of it that way if you were to get uh, one of those magic lamps with a genie in it, only this time you get one wish, not three, and you rub it, and you can have whatever you want. What would be your greatest possession? I know, a new presidential candidate. (laughs) All right, how about a new job? How about a new car? I mean, just Thinking off the cuff, you know, you might as a reaction think, you know, oh, I'd like a new this or a new that. But then you pause and you go, no, that's, I don't want to rush things. Let me think. You know what I need? I just need one, I just need one really sincere, genuine friendship. I, I just, I need God to work in my marriage. If I can have a good marriage, that would be the only possession I would care about. If I, I need God to work in my kids, if God would save my son or my daughter or, you know, my children, if he would do that, you know, that would mean everything to me. If he would restore my health, you know, I mean, you can, you can go down the list of some very significant, very noble things, Good things that would be wonderful to possess, to have, and to enjoy. But at the end of the day, what what could God give you that would be the greatest thing? And the answer to that question is the same answer as to, well, what is the greatest thing that there is? Thing is really the wrong word. Our vocabulary fails us. God's not a thing. God is God. And the greatest thing that God could give us is himself. If God is the greatest being, the greatest entity, the the greatest thing, you know, that exists, then then for us to have the greatest thing would mean that we would have God, and and that's exactly what he gives us. He gives us himself. And any life that falls short of enjoying him as our greatest possession, so to speak, he really does use that language that, that we are his and he's ours. Any life that loses sight of God is our greatest gift, um, is a life that is truncated and shallow and, and falls short. Our spiritual fathers and mothers reminded us that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is what we are here for. That's our chief end. The reason why we breathe is to have this relationship with God and to recognize his greatness and his glory and to know that he gives himself to us. Paul was just saying that in chapter six, the wages of sin is death. You know, we've gotten ourselves into a pickle Here's what we deserve uh, to be held accountable for our sin. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this really brings us to something else we have to consider. That this great and glorious God who owns everything that exists, everything is from him, as Paul reminds us, that this one who is so great and so glorious has humbled himself and become like one of us. He tabernacled among us. He came and he took on our flesh and he took on our frailty, our our weakness. Like a good high priest, he can sympathize with all of the things that we need, all the places where we feel our smallness. And Jesus felt that too. And that's an incredible gift that God gave himself to us through Jesus. But he did more. He didn't just descend from heaven to earth, but he went from earth. As our confession says, he experienced the hell of a separation from his father. He didn't just come and be one of us. He came and was rejected by us. He took our sin upon himself, and he died on a cross as a substitute for all who have sinned, all of us, so that when we see him as our substitute, when we put our faith in him to take our sins away and to pay the penalty that you and I can't pay, we dare not pay, we dare not take that on ourselves, none of us want to go to hell. Jesus endured that separation in our place, which which just makes God even greater which makes the the height and the length and the width and the depth of his love that much greater. He deserves even more praise because he so loved a sinful, broken, fallen world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not be held accountable for sin, but instead would have eternal life. That's the greatness of our God. And he was high and lifted up came and was one of us. But he didn't stop there. He went to a cross and was rejected by us so that we could repent and believe on him and become new. So we could become new creations. This is the greatest gift that God could give us. And then there's, a, there's an application here, a point that we need to observe. If our if the greatest gift that God could give us is himself, then what is the greatest gift that you or I or us corporately as a congregation could give to those around us? It's God. The greatest thing that you and I as a church congregation-wide, and as individuals in ministry, wherever we are, the greatest thing you and I can give to those around us is Jesus, the glorious, great God who is high and lifted up and who deserves all praise. Everything is from him who also came and lived among us. And so when Jesus challenges his disciples and he says, look, here's what everybody else is saying about me, but who do you say that I am? That's the question we need to be asking our community. Do you recognize the greatness of Jesus? Do you recognize that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? And that's why we're here. To point to the glory of God. The glory of the one who is high and majestic but who also loved us so much that he came among us and was rejected by us. And there's, I mean, we can do all kinds of wonderful things for our neighbors, for our community, for the nations. I mean, we can can do mercy, we can have ministry, we can... Love, uh, folks, we can do all kinds of, of great things, but if we're not giving them a view to the glory of God and Jesus, then it's pointless. It doesn't mean anything because it misses the mark. It misses what it's all about. It misses the unifying principle of God's glory to us in Jesus because from him and through him are all things. Don't we give gifts to God? God's the great giver, right? He's the fountain from which everything flows, and everything is from him. And yet we we give gifts to God. What's that about? You know, Jesus even acknowledges this. He says, hey, when you're presenting your gift, uses the word gift, when you give your gift at the altar and then remember, oh wait, so-and-so's mad at me. So-and-so has something against me. Jesus says, Leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, to your sister, whoever, and then come back and then present your gift. So yeah, we do give gifts. But what are those gifts? Those gifts are simply the things that God has first given us, and that in devotion to him, we give back to him. There's nothing that you and I can give to him that he hasn't first given to us except for one thing. Anybody know what the only thing that you and I can give to God that we can truly call our own is? only thing you and I can give to God that he didn't first give us is our sin. And he even willingly takes that and receives that from us and exchanges that for the gift of his righteousness and his goodness and his beauty. All of those things become ours by faith in Jesus. Anytime we give him a gift, we're just giving back to him something that he's given to us Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, says the Lord. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that you did not receive? For if then you received it, why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? God is the fountain from which every good gift flows. And we are the stewards of his varied gifts. If if he gives us everything, that puts us in a role that's different from owners. We're borrowers. We're not, we're not possessors. We're stewards. Everything we have is on lend to us. And so God calls us to use his gifts and his, all, all the things that he provides for us wisely and, and, and in accord with his purposes for his possessions. He really does have a, a point here. Um, Peter tells us in Uh, his first epistle, as each has received a gift, that's each one of us, gifts and gifts, um, uh, that can be spiritual gifts, and I'm just going to broaden it to everything that we have. We're to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, God's varied gifts, in order that in everything God may be glorified. And there's that whole point to it all again. Um, So we're to be good stewards of God's varied gifts in order that in everything God may be glorified. Now, what's interesting is that Peter says that we're to be good stewards. So if we're called to be good stewards, then that means it's also possible to not be a good steward, uh, to be a poor steward. Uh, We we do have to remember we are accountable for our stewardship, just like Jesus taught in the parables. We're going to give an answer for everything that he's given us. What have you done with the gifts that I've given to you? Uh, How have you exercised your stewardship? Um, and, And Paul, again, 1 Corinthians 4 says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You and I are called to be found faithful as stewards of everything that God has given us. Spiritual gifts, material gifts, everything belongs to him. Everything is from him and through him. And lastly, everything is to him. To him, Be the glory forever. There's this whole point that Paul Paul is making right after his doxology here in these four verses. He turns uh, in the next thought, chapter 12, verse 1 that we looked at last week. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of all of his gifts, in view of his generosity, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Make your whole life an act of worship. Because to him are all things. Make your whole life an act of worship. This is the the centrality of of doxology, the centrality of worship to our lives. If everything is an act of worship, we probably ought to know what worship is. Worship comes from an old English word, and I think most of you have heard this. But if you're, if this is new, it's pretty cool. Uh, the word worship comes from the two words worthship. You know, it's basically. Uh, evaluating and and saying and esteeming what something is worth. So our worship is simply, you need to catch this, worship is inevitable. Worship is the inevitable reaction in our hearts to whatever it is we value. The, the the most basic definition of worship is worthship. So worship is whatever is going on in our hearts when we value something, when we esteem its worth. Um, so it's really important, therefore, that we esteem and value things properly and in the right priority in our hearts. Uh, John Piper, I like he, his definition of worship. He says that true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things, and so. Piper is pointing out, here's what true worship is. There's false worship, and there's the worship of idols. But when we calibrate our worship correctly, it means that the thing, the object of our greatest value is God. To him is all the glory. He gets the greatest declaration of value in our hearts. So God is the fountain from whom you know, all gifts flow. And he's, well, he's not just this fountain that's bubbling over with all these good gifts. Uh, that river flows and it flows and, and God ends up as the ocean as well to whom all good gifts flow. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. From him, through him, to him are all things. That's the centrality of doxology. You and I, as we said before, you know, our chief end, is to glorify God, to worship Him. And Tabernacle, um, for that matter, at the you know, we print on the front of our bulletin, you see this every Sunday, that our purpose statement here on the bottom begins with what is central to us. By God's grace, you know, by God's gifts, Tabernacle Presbyterian Church lives for the enjoyment of his glory. That's why we're here, that's why we exist. And if we're doing anything else. First and foremost, we've failed. We've fallen short. So if that's why we exist as a church, that we live for the enjoyment of his glory, let me ask each one of us, what are you living for? Does that purpose statement define you? That I exist for the enjoyment of his glory. I am living actively and intentionally For the enjoyment of his glory. There are different things in our lives that uh, that compete for that allegiance and for that primary place. Uh, Different things, uh, you know, we're constantly battling the temptation to set our hearts primarily and principally on, on idols, the wrong things, things like, well, like approval. You know, what I want most of all, the most precious, most valuable thing to me right now is that people approve of me and like me and tell me. That everything I'm doing it measures up. Some of us are totally addicted to that. That's an idol. Uh, others, it's status, prestige, you know. I want people to think that, uh, that I'm successful. Um, some people want to know, uh, want people to, to, you know, they just want comfort, they want security, they want safety, and that's most important to them in their lives. And and you can put anything in that role of what you worship, what you give the supreme worth to. You can, put, uh, you can put power and politics in that place. You can put sex in that place. You can put money in that place. And, um, and this is probably a good place to, to, to think out loud about which of those idols is the most powerful in terms of its allure on us? Which one is most compelling as a replacement for God? And I'm with you, I'm thinking out loud here, but based on some of the things that Jesus says, I think an argument can be made that as, as life-altering and life-ruining as some of those things can be, money is at the top. Jesus says things like this, that take care, watch out. He warns us explicitly, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus rarely talks like that where he says, watch out, be on guard. He doesn't say watch out, be on guard against adultery. Almost because, you know, and I like Tim Keller's take on this. He says, you don't really, everybody knows when they're committing adultery. (laughs) It's not a secret, you know. It's not something that kind of mystifies us. But we're, we're, we're often the frog in the kettle when it comes to greed. We don't think of ourselves as greedy. We don't think that money is an idol. But it can be, even though we're not recognizing it. So Jesus is calling us to an even greater alertness. In Matthew, Jesus says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then when he comes up with an example, here's an example of your, uh, you know, this competition in your heart for, for, for the centrality of doxology. You can worship God or you can worship money. But nobody can serve two masters. Right? So f- to him, he gets the glory. It's, it's the centrality of of God as the object of our worship can't be missed. And so when we think about money, we recognize it has an incredible power as an idol to draw us away from our true object of our affection and who we value most. But I want you to know that we need to be clear here. It's not just money. It's actually the love of money that's the problem. Money itself can be a really wonderful tool. Money itself, when you think about it, money, if, if our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, what's money's chief end? Money's chief end is to glorify God and to help people enjoy him forever. That's why money exists, <laughs> just like we exist. Money's chief end is to glorify God and to help people enjoy him forever. Money does not exist so that we can glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever, which is a hard truth to swallow. So does our, um, does our checkbook glorify God and help people to enjoy him forever? Does your wallet glorify God and help people to enjoy him forever? Does your pocketbook glorify God and help people to enjoy him forever. Do your credit cards, glorify God and help people to enjoy him forever. We get in this thing where there's sort of, okay, there's the money I give to the church or to missionaries or to, you know, this group and that group, um, and then there's everything else. And we, we divide our money. This is kind of my, my spiritual money, and then here's everything else. It's not, here's everything else. It's everything belongs to God. Every penny belongs to him, and every penny is designed to glorify him. Everything. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What we can also say as an application is whether you spend or save or give or whatever you do with your money, do all to the glory of God. With every penny, be intentional. Live a life as a disciple In view of God's mercy, present your bodies, present your life, present your money as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. This is your spiritual act of worship. So, um, what about our spending? What does it mean to glorify God with our spending? Well, it means to live within our means, to, 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 to gratefully receive what God's provided and then live contently within those means. What does it mean to save? in a way that glorifies God, to use our money wisely. Well, it means preparing for the future the way the Proverbs encourage us to prepare for the future. Look at the ant and, you know, and compare the ant with the, you know, the sluggard, you know, the lazy person who's not you know, preparing and not seeking to not, not store up you know, wealth in barns and trust in those savings like the rich fool who Jesus warns us against but simply and practically to think, what do I need in you know, retirement so I'm not going to be an unnecessary burden on other people? And, and by the way, saving is one way that we think about the opposite, which is living a life of debt. And it is, does glorify God to get out of debt. What about glorifying God with your giving? Is God glorified by what you and I give? Uh, are, are gifts... Sacrificial or superficial? What do we give God? We would, well, I would be a foolish man indeed if I wanted to honor my wife and show my love to my wife and seek to bless my wife by running over to the Dollar Tree to get her a birthday present. I think she might be honored a little more from Tiffany. Are your gifts superficial or sacrificial when it comes to the Lord? Um, So here's some good news. Among all the countries in the world, do you know which country is, you know, most generous, most philanthropic? USA. Good stuff. And among um, groups within the United States, which group is the most generous? Christians. Good news. Um, Among Christians... Who, what, what, what subgroup, what subcategory gives more than the rest of those who claim to be Christians? Evangelicals. So h- generally the studies demonstrate that Christ, those who say they're Christians, and we're just kind of using that in the broadest possible sense to include a whole lot of different kinds of, of churches, etc., um, they give 2 to 3% of their income. Evangelicals give 4% of their income. And guess what God's baseline is? 10%. Womp, womp. <laughs> we were feeling good there for a second. Um, God's baseline is 10%. Everything comes from him. and He says, I just want that, you know, let's start at 10%. Trust me with 10%. And then even give above that. Make offerings and sacrifices above that to demonstrate that I'm central in your life. Generosity begets generosity. When we respond and see God's generous nature in the gospel, when we see that he didn't, didn't even spare his own son, but, but generously, graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? If, if we are living in light of that reality, and if that is more than theory, but reality, that kind of generosity can't help but foster generosity in us. We want to be like our Father in heaven. We want to be conformed to his image, and he's the giver. And wouldn't to be great for Christians to, to grow their reputation as givers as well? Why are we talking about this? Why are we doing a series on stewardship, right? Um, this makes us anxious. You're here. I mean, most of you probably even got a phone call. Hey, try to be there this Sunday. We're going to kick off our stewardship campaign. Why are we doing this? I I got two reasons for you real quick. The first is because this is an important part of our discipleship that's neglected. I've neglected it. And as your pastor, I need to ask you to forgive me because I have been so concerned about the reputation of Christians and preachers in general that we are greedy, and all we care about is people's money, and so, you know, you, you tend to overreact. And so you downplay, you soft-pedal money and the importance of it, and because uh, we don't want to offend people. Jesus Jesus talked a lot about money. Um, The end result is that well-intentioned, you know, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching pastors don't preach about money, don't preach about stewardship, and their people are um, just ill-taught. You know, the sheep aren't fed, and I'm responsible, and so I'm repenting of that. We need to be discipled. We need to be discipled about our money. There's a second reason why we're doing this. Oh, Just by the way, little poll. And if you feel like giving me a show of hands, that'd be fun too. How many of you, because there's, right, the stereotype is that Christians are greedy and churches only care about your money. How many of you, when's the last time you heard a sermon? Can you remember the last time you heard a sermon about money? Not just an application point, but a sermon all about money. Can you even remember hearing a sermon about money? Anybody? you know, once or twice, maybe it's been a while. But is that, is that a true stereotype? I don't think it is, but, you know, I've believed the lie and fallen into that, so we're trying to, to turn on that dime. So that's one reason why we're doing this, this campaign. Second reason, this is a really strategic time in the life of Tabernacle. As um, the following video is going to hopefully make clear, we're wanting to fulfill more and more of God's purposes for us. And we really do believe that in order to do that, if we can free ourselves of our debt, the $750,000 mortgage that we have on this space, uh, this expanded space that we've been in about seven years, it's a wonderful space, and we're thankful for it, and God's using it. But if we can get out from under that debt, there will be even more resources freed for us to fulfill God's purposes for us. We can add to our staff, Kyle can go full-time, we can expand ministries We can do more missions. We can do more mercy. We can can continue to multiply this church into areas and pockets of our community so that the message of God's glory in the gospel of Jesus gets out to more and more people. That's his purpose for us, to glorify him by pointing others to his glory. So... Let's, uh, let's watch this video and we'll have more to share in just a second. Starting Tabernacle in 2002 was an enormous step of faith. Along the way, we've taken additional bold steps of faith like planting Holy Cross in Stanton and expanding these facilities here in Waynesboro. God has many, many people in this community who he wants to gather before his throne. Expanding these facilities was the right thing to do, but it wasn't free. Over the past seven years, we've been able to pay off a good bit of principal, but we still owe $750,000. Over the next 17 years, conservative estimates that we would spend another $358,000 just on interest, and interest rates are supposed to rise. It's time to get rid of this debt. It's time for a next step of faith, a stewardship campaign that will allow us to pay off our mortgage within the next three years. Right now, Tabernacle sets apart $64,000 every year just to pay our mortgage. Imagine how we could use that money to bless our community, to bless our congregation. Imagine how that money could be used for the Lord's purposes in ministry, in missions, and in mercy.
1: At Tabernacle, we have ministries for our youngest members all the way up to our oldest members, discipleship opportunities, men's, women's ministry, discipleship classes, youth group, worship team, lots of different ways for us to love each other and to serve each other and to see the body of Christ being the hands and feet to one another and to anybody from the community that may walk through our doors. I think the obvious thing to think about throughout the stewardship campaign would be a monetary uh, relief obviously if we don't have the burden of finances it would be much easier for each each of these ministries to thrive
2: tab's current mercy ministry is based on the premise that from time to time uh, everyone needs some help and we're able to uh, provide assistance uh, either physical assistance or financial assistance to uh, to those members who do need help. A good recent example is when we took up a special collection for, um, for some couples that were adopting. That's a very expensive uh, thing and uh, thankfully, the church had some funds that could be applied to that assistance.
3: Yeah, we're excited about the idea of the stewardship campaign. Um, because we think that it really can have an impact in the way that we do missions here at TAB. We as a medium-sized church support a good number of different missionaries and mission agencies, over a dozen, close to 15 different ministries. Based on our budget and, and our finances, frankly, we support many of those ministries at a pretty low level. So if funds were freed up, it would be really neat to see us have a deeper involvement with many of the ministries we already support
2: looking at the uh, t- the teachings of Jesus in Matthew. Um, he was talking about the coming of the kingdom and what it would be like. He said that when that happened the king would look to those on his right and he would say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And the Bible says the righteous would answer saying, Lord, when did we do that for you? And he said, anytime you did this for these, the least of my brothers you did it for me. So I think that's a, a It's a pretty rousing endorsement of mercy from our Lord Jesus. He also talked about money a lot, and um, while he did warn about the misuse of money and allowing money to be more important than it is, um, he also seemed to to indicate that money was a valuable ministry tool.
1: A successful stewardship campaign also means that we are looking at other ways that we can um, be stewards, be that stewards of our time, stewards of our gifts, ways that the Lord has called us that maybe we aren't stepping into yet. And a successful stewardship campaign means each one of us is taking a look at those things, is prayerfully saying, okay, Lord, what are you calling me to do to help Tabernacle grow, to uh, love my neighbor better here? in our own walls and beyond.
3: We as a missions committee are excited too about seeing people on the front lines, uh, seeing people more involved in church planning and discipleship. Uh, One of the ways that we can invest in that would be through supporting more native, indigenous missionaries, missionaries who speak the language already, who live on the front lines. One of the positive effects of a stewardship campaign would be freeing up more funds in our budget to be able to support those types of missionaries. My feeling that if
2: we get out from underneath this debt through a successful campaign, when someone has needs in our congregation or in the, in the community, wouldn't it be great if we not only had the will, but we had the means to help.
0: Tabernacle turns 15 next year, but our purpose remains the same to be a growing, multiplying church that bears much fruit. Our 2020 vision is to reach a whopping 1% of our community, which doesn't sound like much, until you realize that's 1,200 people. And we believe the best way to reach them and make disciples is to plant more churches. Our Next Step of Faith campaign is gonna enable us to plant more churches, to multiply, to do more ministry, more missions, and more mercy. Imagine what an additional $64,000 a year can do to help us reach that goal. So we need your help. Jesus is always calling us to take our next step of faith as his disciples. And Through our stewardship campaign, we have the unique opportunity to take our next step of faith together as a congregation. So I'm asking you to pray. Ask Jesus, what would you do through me to accomplish your purposes for Tabernacle? Help me discern a sacrificial and joyful step of faith that I might take in our stewardship campaign. We're all going to be praying that prayer together over the coming weeks. And I think we're in for some big surprises when we see how God answers it. Will you take your next step of faith with us?